Amen. If you would, open your Bibles, please, to Genesis chapter 21. We're going to be looking today at the life of Abraham and some of the lessons that he learned through his life, and especially in relation to God's goodness versus God's best. And the reason why that's important is because that which is good may not always be that which is best. Some of you have experienced that in your life. I want to introduce you to somebody. Here is a 300-pound uh, a wrestling champ of Europe. And I've got a, uh, a picture of him here. And his name is Yusuf. And they call him the Terrible Turk. Uh, the reason why they call him that is because of his massive size and also his awesome strength. Uh, at that time period, he was probably in the late 1800s. And uh, they, they suggest that maybe he was probably one of the top three strongest men in the world at that time. And if you go and actually do some research on him, there's a reason why they call him terrible as well. Uh, some of the things he did to his uh, people that he wrestled against, uh, I think, left very lasting scars. And so he was a, uh, a terrible guy at that. But he was Europe's champion and uh, after he won the championship in Europe he sailed over to the United States and he wanted to take on their champion. Their champion was Strangler Lewis. He was a much smaller man who weighed just over about 200 pounds. Strangler Lewis had a simple plan for defeating his opponents. He would put his arm around the competitor's neck and cut off the oxygen right there around the Adam's apple and of course uh, by doing that uh, they would pass out in the ring, and therefore that was one of Strangler's tactics that he used, and he won many, many, uh, 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 of course he ended up being the championship because of that, because of his tactics. Now the problem Lewis had when it came to fighting the terrible Turk was that this European giant didn't have a neck. <laughs> he went from a big head to a uh, big shoulders, and uh, that caused a problem for him because he never could get a hold on him, and as a result of that, uh, Yusuf flipped uh, Lewis over on the mat and pinned him, and therefore he won the championship. And uh, after winning the championship, the terrible Turk demanded that every bit of his $5,000 prize money be given to him in gold. After that, he wrapped the championship around his vast equator-like middle, and he stuffed all the gold, bags of gold coin in that belt of his, and he got on the ship back to Europe. Not only had he captured America's gold, but he also captured America's glory. And he thought, hey, he'd won it all. Yusuf sailed back to Europe, and about halfway across the Atlantic, a storm struck. The ship began to sink. The terrible Turk went boldly over the side of the rail. The gold still strapped around his body. The added weight was too much. For this heavyweight champion, he sank like an anvil right down to the bottom of the ocean before the lifeboats could get there to rescue him. And he was never seen again. We hear a story like this, a true story, and we think, how on earth could anybody be so foolish? But the, the, the truth of the matter is, we all have a tendency to grasp onto the things of the world and hold on to them even while we are sinking. The story of Yusuf, the terrible Turk, shows us the tragic consequences that can overwhelm us when we lose our perspective 
and we lose our priorities. If we were to take a poll here this morning, I would imagine that most people here would say that they are living a pretty good life. They live a good life. I mean, after all, we are in Australia, right? It doesn't get any better than this. There you go. We're living a good life. It's good. In fact, I've talked to some of you personally, and you've come, come from, from other areas, from other countries, and you know how the other half lives. You know what it's like being on the other side of the tracks. You've experienced it for yourself. And this is one of the reasons why you've come to Australia. It's because you want a better life for your family. You want a safer life for your family. You want education for your kids. You want to come over here and get a good, a good job. You want to live the good life. And compared to your previous life, your life is good. But sometimes that which is good can rob us of that which is best. Use of winning that gold to him was a good thing. But in all likelihood, it was the very thing that took his life. In our study of the uh, life of Abraham, we come to an event that should have brought only joy for Abraham and Sarah. But while the birth of Isaac uh, brought so much joy, it also brought a lot of heartache and pain as well. In fact, we're going to take it in two parts. The first part will be the birth of Isaac, and the second part will be the expulsion of Ishmael. Each one has a valuable lesson for us to consider. So what did Abraham learn from the birth of Ishmael? Well, if you've got your Bibles open to Genesis chapter 21, let's go to verse 1. And the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as he had spoken. For Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time set, uh, set time for which God had spoken to him. And Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. Then Abraham circumcised his son Isaac on the eighth day, when he was eight, day old, eight days old, and as God had commanded him. And now Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made me laugh, and all who hear will laugh with me. And she also said, who would ever have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children for I have borne him a son in his old age. So what are some lessons that Abraham learned from the birth of Isaac? Well, first of all, he learned that God keeps his word. That God keeps his word. The, the most important verse in this whole chapter is verse 1 here. And notice what it says in the Living Bible and how it translates it. Then God did as he had promised, and Sarah became pregnant and gave Abraham a baby son in his old age at the time God had said. Do you see where God is located in that verse? He is at the beginning, and he is at the end. Then God did as he um, had promised, and at the time God had said. God is at the beginning, and he is at the end, and this is why Sarah became pregnant. Because God was going to keep his word. This is why Abraham is now changing diapers at the age of 100. You imagine. You think your life's complicated. But he also learned that God's timing is always perfect. Approximately 25 years have passed since God first spoke to Abraham in the Ur of Chaldees. And during that time, Abraham has had many adventures. Many spiritual ups and downs, and sometimes he fervently believed God, and other times he doubted. 
Time and time again, God appeared to him to remind him of the promise that he had made to him. And I'm sure uh, often he wondered why God was taking so long to keep his word. So let the truth of of Isaac's birth here remind you of this. God is never early and God is never late. God is never early and he is never late. He's also not in a hurry. He doesn't work according to our timetables. Often we fret and we fuss and we, we fume when God delays his answering prayer. Oh how, oh, how much better it would be if we would simply pray, Lord, let your will be done in your own time, in your own way. That's easier said than it is prayed. Because oftentimes we want it done our way, in our time. And it's hard to relinquish that to God. God gives a promise, but he oftentimes he waits on the performance of that promise. Most of the time, it's longer than we expect. He is teaching us to walk by faith. When we walk by faith, we not always understand what's going on. When we walk by faith, it's not by sight. If we can see it, then it's not a faith. Though we can't see it, listen, we can still trust. And this is what God would have us do. Abraham is the father of faith. 25 years later comes the promise in God's timing. Notice also he learned God's power is unlimited. God's power is unlimited. This is what Paul's uh, point he was wanting to make in Romans chapter 4, verse 21, where he says that Abraham believed God's promise because he was, I love how he puts this, listen to how he puts this, because he was fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised. He was fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he was promised. To use Paul's words, he wanted both Abraham and Sarah to be as good as dead. Physically. So that when the child was born, only God could get the credit. The spiritual life involves risk. God frequently calls us to do things that seem uncomfortable and risky and downright painful. Generally speaking, the people we find in Scripture who was called by God didn't fill up to their calling. Whether it was Abraham to leave his home, Gideon to call out to lead an army. Uh, Esther to, to uh, uh, call and, and approach the king. Mary got a call to, to birth the Messiah. I don't think their response when they got the call was, yeah, no, no worries, right here, I'm, I'm, I'm not a problem, I can do that. That wasn't their response. Generally, when we get a call like that from God, it usually involves fear. That's usually our first response. Henry Blackaby writes, Some people say, God will never ask me to do something I cannot do. Have you heard people say that? God will never ask me to do something I cannot do. And he responds this way. He says, I have come to the place in my life if the assignment I sense God is giving me is something that I know I can handle, I know it probably is not from God. The kind of assignments God gives in the Bible are always God-sized. 
They are always beyond what people can do because he wants to demonstrate his nature, his strength, his provision, his kindness to his people and the world that's watching. This is the only way the world will come to know him. Think about that. The only way that the world will come to know God is if the people he calls actually takes him up on the challenge to live life by faith. God calls us to a grand adventure, a life of trust, a life of risk, a life of fulfillment, and a life whose priorities are shaped by a God-divine agenda. But if we allow ourselves to be distracted from pursuing God's best plans, and instead we start chasing after countless good things in life, then we will fail to display the nature and the strength and provision and kindness of God to our world. And as a result of that, our world is going to suffer for it. No one could say to Abraham, at the age of 100, Oh, oh, oh you little rascal, you. No. Abraham had to believe God. And he had to act upon it. And when Abraham held little Isaac in his arms, he knew that nothing was too hard for the Lord. He also learned that God can turn sorrow into joy. In Genesis chapter 17 and 18, we're told that both Abraham and Sarah laughed in unbelief when God promised that within a year, Sarah would have a child. But when the year passed, Isaac was born. By the way, his name means laughter. How appropriate. It was both a statement of total joy and also a reminder that God's promises is no laughing matter. God had made a promise to you. Go through and look in Scripture. The Bible is full of promises. Now, not all of them belong to you. Okay? I don't know if any of you are going to be a virgin and have a, have a baby. Okay? Not all promises belong to you in Scripture, but there are plenty of uh, promises in the Bible that we can go to that God has made promises to us, and I can assure you that He will keep His promise. You may waver, but He will not waver. You may doubt, but that will not stop God. This morning your eyes may be filled with tears, but remember what the Word of the Lord says. Those who sow in tears will reap with songs of joy. Maybe there's times in your life where circumstances seem to be such that you feel like God is so distant from you. He seems so far away. And you're concerned about it and you worry about it. What we need to do is to go back to God's Word and go back to Scripture and see what God's Word says. And He promises, I will never leave you, nor will I forsake you. And regardless of how we feel, we come back to the Word of God and say, Hey, look. My, my feelings may be such that I don't feel God near, but this is what the Word of God says, and so based on His promise, this is what I'm going to believe. This is what Abraham learned about the birth of Isaac. What about the dismissal of Ishmael? What did Abraham learn about the dismissal of Ishmael? This is one of the strangest and probably the saddest portions in the Bible. Look with me in verse 8, if you will. So the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the same day that Isaac was weaned. And Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had born to Abraham, scoffing. She was making fun of her son. She was mocking him. Therefore she said to Abraham, Cast this bondwoman and her son 
uh, for that son of the bondwoman shall not be heirs with my son, namely with Isaac. Now, I guess this was sort of like a weaning ceremony, a weaning celebration. Uh, he had gotten his independence. He had gone from milk to meat. He had uh, was no longer sort of depended upon mom to feed him. And so they thought, hey, this was a celebration. This is a, a milestone in the child's life. And so they were going to celebrate it. And it was going to be a joyous occasion. Then somebody was picking on mom's little boy. And that was the end of that. And it brought quite sorrow to this event. Sarah's words are harsh and bitter. And they reflect, they re, they reflect the lingering resentment she felt toward Hagar over Ishmael. And her son. If you remember the story, God promised Abraham that he was going to have a seed. And his seed will, will be like the stars in heaven. But there was a problem. Sarah was barren. She couldn't have children. And so Sarah came up with the bright idea, hey, I'll take one of my handmaidens and I'll give her to my husband and they can get married and then they can have children in order to fulfill God's promise. But whenever Hagar became pregnant, all it was was contention between the two ladies. And that had grown, and by now Ishmael was probably 15, 16 years old and perhaps Sarah felt like she's had enough of this teenage disrespect and she told Abraham to get rid of the boy and her mother. And you see the world of pain in verse 11. Notice what it says. And the matter was very displeasing to Abraham's sight because of his son. We've got to keep in mind, this was his firstborn son. Guys, have you ever gotten an ultimatum from your wife? Looking at some of you out there, it's like happens on a daily basis, I think. In order to please Sarah, he had to get rid of the son he loved. Every parent can imagine the pain that must have ripped through his heart. I mean, how do you say to your own flesh and blood, be gone, never come back? But that's exactly what Sarah was telling him to do. And this, in this day and age, one of the things that really saddens me is the amount of divorce that takes place in our society today. You have two people fall in love, they go and get married, they have a kid, and then later on somehow they decide, they come up with the, uh, the idea that they're long, no longer compatible, so they split up. And then they go and they marry somebody else, and of course, they want to have kids together. And so they go and have kids together. And then somehow the stepkids actually end up coming, living with this family, and, it, and they, they call it the blended family. I don't know why they call it the blended family because they don't seem like there's a whole lot of blending going on in some of these families. There seems to be a struggle. There seems to be a battle with the stepchildren and the stepmother and the, step, and the stepbrothers and sisters. And I've seen sometimes where finally one of the parents had enough and they, they, they actually come up and they say, look, either that child goes or I go. And if you've been in that situation, you know exactly what Sarah and Abraham are experiencing right now. And the funny thing is, the interesting thing is, is, is that God agreed. He spoke to Abraham and said, look in verse 12, Do not let it be displeasing in your sight because of the lad or because of the bondwoman. Whatever Sarah has said to you, 
Listen to her voice. For Isaac is your seed, and he shall be the one that we call. Yet I will also make a great nation of the son of the bondwoman because he is your seed. Now this is a very interesting verse here. And let me direct you ladies to the sort of the middle part of that verse. You may want to get out your pens and underline that particular section there. Whatever Sarah has said to you, listen to her voice. You can go back home and show that to your husband and said. God commanded Abraham to listen to his wife. That's all right. The men have their verse as well. <laughs> Ephesians 5.22 Wives, submit to your own husband as unto the Lord. And what you can do is you can both back up one verse and says, submitting to one another in the fear of God. There's a balance. But you are to listen to your wife. There's a reason for it. A lot of times, they've got pretty good intuition. Especially my wife. She's got really good intuition. And after 22 years of marriage, happy anniversary, she's got great intuition. And so sometimes it's in my best interest to hear her out and listen to her. But also, there is a, uh, there's a physical reason why we need to listen to our wives, men. There's a study done in, Hebrew, uh, in, in uh, Henry Ford Hospital. And uh, a guy named Dr. C. Edward Coffey uh, was over this research, and he did a study. And I think, if I remember correctly, the study lasted like 20 or 25 years. And he had his subjects come in, and uh, every periodically he would go, and he would do an MRI on the brain, and he would measure their brain. And based on his studies, men's brains shrink faster than women's brains. Men's brains shrink faster than women's brains. And I know you guys are not going to believe me, so I actually printed out the abstract. And I'll have it up here so you can see it. The part of the brains that actually were affected most were the frontal lobe and the temporal lobe. And according to this research... Though that, that part of the brain controls thinking, planning, and memory. I'll let that sink in for just a moment. Thinking, planning, and memory. Now, the interesting thing is that he goes and he um, uh, advertised the, the results of this and and when he got done, he went home and talked to his wife. He said, hey, look, this is interesting. This is what I found out. And he goes and explains to her all the research that he did and told him the results. And he quotes, this is what his wife said. He said, my wife said, that was no surprise to her. Can <laughs> you imagine spending 25 years doing the research only to have your wife say, oh, well, I knew that. <laughs> but fellas, don't let this bother you. Don't let this... Go to your head. Don't be bothered by it. You'll forget before the morning's over anyway. <laughs> Abraham, listen to your wife, God says. Listen to your wife. So the next day, Abraham gave Hagar and Ishmael food and water and sent them away. And they wandered out in the desert, and they ran out of water, and they nearly died. Now, hang on. Wasn't Abraham rich? Why just bread and water? 
Why did he send them away with just bread and water? Well, some say that this was an indication of his faith. Because you remember in the previous verse, it says, Yet I will also make a nation of the son of the bondwoman, because he is your seed. Abraham was acting on faith and saying, Okay, God, that's your promise. You take care of him. And then they get out in the desert. The boy begins to cry, become dehydrated. So the mom, Hagar, puts Ishmael underneath a bush and walks away because she can't stand to hear her son crying. And then the angel of the Lord appeared to her and said, hey, you don't need to be concerned. You don't need to be worried about I'm going to make your son. He's going to be the father of a great nation. And in verse 19, then God opened up her eyes and she saw a well of water. And she went in and filled the skin of water and gave the boy a drink. Ishmael grew up in the desert. He became a skilled archer. And later married a woman from Egypt. He did indeed become a father of a great nation, and to this day, many Arabic people trace their lineage back to him. And as you look at this story, it's sobering to realize that once Abraham sent Ishmael away, he never saw him again. The deep rupture in the family was never repaired. Sarah and Hagar never became friends, and as far as we know, the only time that Ishmael and Isaac ever met again was at their father's funeral. All of these things happen in the life of Abraham. And I believe of all the things he learned, two things stand out above the rest. First of all, he learned that choices have consequences. No one made him lay with Hagar 15 years earlier. True, it may have seemed like a good idea at the time. And maybe his motivation was wrong. He wanted to please Sarah. He wanted to help God out. But Sarah was wrong to suggest the idea, and Abraham was doubly wrong to act upon it. If he had been a, a, a proper kind of spiritual leader, then, then a lot of headache could have been avoided. Here's a lesson for our children to learn as well. Choices have consequences. You may can choose your choices if you wish to do so, but you don't always get to choose the consequences that go with those choices. You can't turn right and left at the same time. You can't get married and stay single. You can't move away and stay where you are. You can't take algebra and French during the same class. You have choices to make. And, and I'm not sure that Abraham... Uh, never dreamed of laying with Hagar would result in so much headache even today. We talk about the, uh, the world today and you look at the conflict over in the Middle East. The relatives, descendants of these two people are a lot of the problems that are happening over in the Middle East. Abraham never would have dreamed that would happen. In fact, I'm sure he justified it in his own mind as the best way to make his wife happy and also to help out God to keep his promise, but it didn't work out that way. And when we compromise our standard, when we lower our convictions, and when we take the moral and ethical shortcut, it never works out in the end. Choices have consequences. Abraham learned that the hard way as he watched his son Ishmael walk down that lonely road out of sight, 
into the desert, never seeing him again. He also learned that the good must go in order that the best may come. Many people reading this story have wondered about the fairness of God. On one level, it's easy to understand why Hagar and and, uh, Sarah never got along. It's easy to understand why Ishmael and, and Isaac never got along. But why did God literally order Abraham to cast off Ishmael and Hagar in such a seemingly cold way? Well, there are two answers to that question. One is that God knew something that Abraham didn't know. He knew as God he was going to take special care of Ishmael out in the desert. God never intended for Hagar and Ishmael to die in the hot sun. And the other is that God wanted to protect Isaac because he was the promised seed. And this is the reason why God gives in verse 12. Isaac was the promised seed, not Ishmael. And as long as Ishmael remained in the house, he would be a threat to God's plan. So he had to go. Even though it meant hardship, it meant deep sorrow. And even though Hagar probably never understood why, and they probably felt rejected by Sarah and by Abraham, and indeed they were. The spiritual meaning is all clear. In our walk with God, sometimes the good must go in order that the best may come. If you want to compete the highest level, you must sacrifice everything else in your life. You hear stories of Olympians with little girls who started practicing at the age of two and three, and now in their teens they spend six to eight hours a day on the balance beam practicing their floor exercises. And the same thing is true for kayakers and hurdlers and swimmers and weightlifters and marksmen and tennis players and volleyball players and badminton players and, and bicyclists. All of them began years ago learning to be the number one at what they do. They wanted to be the best at what they do. And they, 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 they gave up any semblance of a normal life. They get up earlier than normal people. All day long, they work at perfecting their athletic skill. They exercise, they train, they diet, they lose weight, they gain weight, they lift weight, they bulk up, they slim down, they practice and practice and practice more day after day, month after month, year after year. Why? So that in their lifetime, they can compete with the very best athletes of the world, all in hope for that one brief shining moment when they will be the very best at what they do, better than anyone else on the planet. How do they get to be the best? Talent, of course, has something to do with it. But the streets are filled with talented people who never live up to their potential. And sometimes people with relatively little talent rise to a level of excellency that nobody expects. How is that? Because they're willing to give up the good. They're willing to give up the good. To to accomplish anything in this life, you have to give up the good in order to achieve the best. That means that some good things have to go in order the better things may come. And this touches on every aspect of our life. How we spend our time, especially our leisure hour, uh, I, I, it ought to cause us to examine our habits and, and the friends that we hang around with. Some things may not be wrong, but they just not, may not be the very best for us. Some of the friendships may not be bad, but they just keep pulling us in the wrong direction or keep us from going where we need to go. 
This principle certainly applies to the hidden areas of our life as well. The part of your life that no one else sees as you grow in, in your Christian walk and uh, the good must go in order that the best may come and sometimes God says, I want that thing to go. You need to let it go because I want to give you something better. And oftentimes when God says that, we won't understand the reason for it. God never doesn't have to always explain himself in advance. And we simply have to just obey fully without full understanding. And that's what trusting God is all about. God always gives his best to those who leave the choice up to him. And the best things in life are often found waiting for you at the exit ramp of your comfort zone. Because as Blackaby says, sometimes God's got some God-sized tasks for you. And that's just beyond your comfort zone. That's just beyond what you think you can do. And that's exactly where God wants you. So what do we learn from both of these stories? Well, what do we learn about God? Our context uh, of the scripture here contains two parts that seem to be completely different at first. The birth of Isaac is filled with joy while the dismissal of Ishmael speaks of sorrow, pain, and human failure. Yet God is intimately involved in both of these stories. He is the one who brought forth Isaac after a 25-year wait. And he is the one who ordered Ishmael to be cast off and then took care of him in the wilderness. He is the God of both, of both of these stories in both cases. He is the God of great promise, the God of great patience, the God of great wisdom, and the God of great mercy. That is our God today. The same God. The God who made and kept His promise is the God we worship here this morning. The God who cast off Ishmael and then protected him is the same God who watches over you and I. And if you want it in a sentence, here it is. He is the God who works out His own plan in His own time in His own way. He is a God that works out His own plan in His own time in His own way. That's what we learn about God. How about what about salvation? Well, you may not know this, but the Apostle Paul made reference to a text in Galatians chapter 4 where he draws an analogy between Sarah and Hagar and between Ishmael and Isaac. The woman, he says, represents two covenants. Hagar stands for Mount Sinai where God gave the law, and Ishmael represents everyone who is trying to get to heaven by keeping the law. Sarah stands for a new covenant which comes down to us from heaven. Isaac, therefore, represents true believers in Jesus Christ who are saved entirely by God's grace. You have the grace versus the law. And listen to the words of Galatians chapter 4, verse 31. He says, So then, brethren, talking to believers, we are not of the children of the bondwoman, but of the free. Hagar and Ishmael stand for all the lost people in the world who think they can work their way back to God. Sarah and Isaac stand for true believers who are trusting in Jesus Christ alone for their, for their salvation. And on that basis of that story, I've got to ask you a question. Are you a child of Hagar or are you a child of Sarah? Are you a modern-day Isaac or a modern-day Ishmael? I've got a picture of this man on the screen here. Anybody know him? You're familiar with him? If you're into basketball, you probably heard of him. 
His name is Dennis Rodman. Many years ago, ESP did an interview. Uh, ESPN did a, a uh, interview with him, and uh, he talked about in his book his preoccupation with suicide and death. And the reporter asked him about it, and he basically said that he planned to one day take his own life sometime in the future at his own choosing. And so the uh, interviewer asked me, he says, well, what happens when you die? You can go to heaven or hell. Well, to his credit, he says, no, I think I'll probably go to hell. If you add up all the good things I've done and compare it with all the bad things that I've done wrong, well, the bad will certainly outweigh the good things. But then he added, but I'm trying to get that turned around, and I hope someday I'll be floating on those white clouds of love. God bless Dennis Rodman. You have to know two things in order to go to heaven. He's already figured out the first. He knows that he is a sinner and he deserves hell. And it's rare to see anybody with such honesty to admit that fact. I, I, I'm sure many people think of his antics and said, well, you know what, he's probably, probably right. This guy was a wild man. He's always in trouble doing something wrong. Dennis Rodman, though, isn't going to hell because of all necessarily the things that he's done wrong. That has nothing to do with it. Dennis Rodman is going to hell because he is a sinner just like everyone else in the world. But there is something else that Dennis Rodman needs to discover, and that is this truth, that when you stand before God, he's not going to compare your good with your bad. Because apart from Jesus Christ, the bad will always outweigh the good. And not just for an offbeat basketball player like Dennis Rodman, but also for Billy Graham and Mother Teresa and all of us. When we come to salvation, we come, we're all coming in the same boat. And Jesus Christ opened up that door of heaven when he paid the penalty with his blood. He paid for the sins of many, uh, sins of Dennis Rodman as well as, as ours as well. Of all the doctrines in the Bible, the hardest for me to grasp is the free grace of God. And the mind of man struggles against this because we want to believe that we have a, to play a part in our salvation. How can God save us apart from my sin if I don't do my part? That's a good question. And the answer is the only part that you play in your salvation is to commit the sins that make salvation necessary in the first place. You've done your part. I've done my part. And Jesus Christ did his part 2,000 years ago when he died on the cross and rose from the dead. So let me ask you here one more time. Are you an Isaac or are you an Ishmael? Are you saved by grace or are you like Ishmael and Dennis Rodman who tries to do uh, enough good in order to cancel out the sins so that they can go to heaven? Listen, it didn't work for Ishmael. It won't work for Dennis Rodman and it won't work for you or I as well. But last, what do we learn about choices we make? I've already pointed out that the story teaches about the difference between good and best, and Jesus set the same challenge for his disciples. And Luke, he says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother and his wife and his children and brother and sister, yea, his own life also, he cannot be my disciple, and whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciples. Is he saying here that we're to hate our mother and father? Of course not. That's contradictory to other scriptures. Here is a language of hyperbole. He is saying you must love the Lord Jesus Christ so much so that the love for your parents will seem like hatred by comparison. 
For some of us, this may mean following the Lord in objection to a mother and a father. It may mean that those closest to you will simply not understand what you do, why you do, and they may, like Hagar and Ishmael, they may mock you. And they may tempt you to be quiet. and Stop being so radical. Stop sharing your faith. They may even threaten to disown you if you followed the Lord. What are you going to do then? What are you going to do then? Well, Ishmael must go. Ishmael must go. The good must go in order that the best may come. Think about the words that I'm talking to you here today and may pray that God will, will speak to your heart here this morning. What is it that's in your life that's good? Your, your, your habits, your dreams, your cherished friendships, your secret thoughts that must go in order for the best to come. I don't know how to answer that. Only God does. And I hope He is speaking to your heart even now. But one final thought here. What if I do give up to good? Dwayne, what if I do give up to good? How do I know for sure that I will receive God's best? Well, God didn't leave us without an answer. In Mark chapter 10, he says, So Jesus answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you that there is no one who has left house or brother or sister or father or mother or wife, child or land for my sake and the gospel's sake, who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, and children and lands, with persecution, and in this age, and in the age to come, eternal life. God is no debtor to anyone. You will never regret anything you give up for Jesus. Not in this life, nor in the life to come. But the saddest people in all the world are those who cling stubbornly to what they have because they dare not give it up for God. With their heads bowed and their eyes closed here today, I want to have a time of reflection and I'll ask the musicians to come on up and play. I don't know exactly how God wants to apply this message in your life. But if you were open and honest, I believe He has something to say to you here this morning. Just remember this, God never takes away anything we hold dear without giving us something better in return. He never takes away an Ishmael without giving us an Isaac. And I challenge you today to choose God's best. So often the trials of life, we fail to see the divine provision God has made for us. And we forget the promise He has made to us. And we open up our hands to receive those things that we think we need. And we ask Him to give to us. But if we just simply open up our eyes, we can see what God has already done in our lives. The answer to, the, to, to, to most problems in life is, is close at hand. If we're just willing to have the eyes to see it. Is there good in your life that you need to give up in order to receive God's best? Oftentimes in our rush to pursue our own desires, we become like a dog who's wrapped around a telephone pole on a leash. And the harder and harder we pull to try to free ourselves, the more we become tangled and we become choked in the process. And the Master, in order to free us, must move us precisely in the opposite direction around the pole. And rather than viewing the Master as a liberator, we sometimes mistakenly think He's hindering our pursuit of joy and fulfillment. But if we're willing to patiently trust the Master enough to obey His calling, we will find that His is the only path to real freedom. That which is good may not always be that which is best. And so let me encourage you here this morning. Don't allow the good to rob you 
of God's best.